Pastor Dave. How are you, everybody? Happy Father's Day to all of you. We're so uh, grateful that you could be here today. Uh, you know, on, on Mother's Day weekend, uh, both of us had the opportunity to speak, and we, we talked about the ideal woman. And so we said on Father's, or Mother's Day that we would give equal time to the guys. So, we, uh, so here we are. We're going to be talking about the ideal dude. So, uh, so speaking of the ideal dude, that, that would be this guy right here. This is the ideal dude. <laughs> and uh, a few years ago, Masculine Magazine uh, surveyed a thousand women and asked them to describe the ideal dude. And so they came up with a list of things, and I want to just share with you the, their top seven answers. And so they said that the ideal dude, first of all, number seven was the ideal dude has a big dog. And so here's our ideal dude with his dog. Um, Jane, that's kind of small. Can you put a bigger dog up there for us? Ah, that's better. All right, so the ideal dude's got a big dog. Um, number six, they said that the ideal dude uh, is at least six feet tall. And so Pastor Greg needs a little help with this, and so if we could stretch him out a little bit, that's better. Uh, six feet tall. Uh, number five, they said that the ideal dude has well-defined abs. And again, Pastor Greg definitely needs some help with this one. And so if we can give a six-pack... That's actually an Ex actual picture. Wow. Uh, yeah, right. How did you get that? In your dreams. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, number four, they said that the ideal dude is all tatted up. So we'll, we'll put some yeah, tats on his arms there. That's kind of nice. Then number three, they said that the ideal dude is a man enough to wear ripped skinny jeans. So that is really disgusting. Uh, it really is disgusting, isn't it? If I ever wear skinny jeans at church, please shoot me. All right, put me out of my misery. Uh, number two, they said that the ideal dude has just the right amount of facial hair, not too much, not too little. Almost looks like um, Hugh Jackman there. And number five, uh, number one, they said that the ideal dude, and this is the last one, the, uh, the ideal dude sports a buzz cut. So the wet head is gone. Uh, he's got the buzz cut. And so this, they said, is the ideal dude. And if Pastor Greg ever looked like that, I'm sure he would kill our church. I mean, every, everyone would leave, right? right? That actually so, looks pretty good. You I like don't it? know. Yeah? Let's, let's do it. That's good. Well, you know, I, you know, I'm kidding about all this. We, you know, there's no masculine magazine. There was no survey. I just kind of made all this up just to have a little fun here today. But... Um, Today, you know, Siri, the, the topic is a little serious. We really want to talk to you about what it means to be a man. And it's an important topic because, first of all, when a man fails to be all that God wants him to be, then there are repercussions everywhere. It affects everyone. Uh, it, affects, it affects wives and it affects children and it affects families. It, it really has an impact on everyone. And some of you know what I'm talking about because some of you had dads who weren't there. And, and so today is, is kind of a painful day as you think about your own dads. If your dad wasn't there, you know the repercussions on your own life, you know, with a dad that wasn't there. So uh, that's an important topic. Not only are individuals and families affected by how a man uh, behaves, but if a man fails to be the man that God wants him to be, it, it affects societies and it affects, can affect generations of, of families. It can affect entire cultures and, and entire nations are affected by this. And so uh, it's an important topic. And the truth is, the truth is many men today don't know what it means to be a real man because it was not modeled for them or it was not taught to them. And you think about this, you know, where, guys, where did you learn to be a man? Well, it's probably by following or watching your dad. 
But if your dad was not a good role model for you, then, then it affects you. And so then we're at this place where so many people don't understand what it means to be a man. And our, continue, and our society continues to embrace this warped sense of what a man, uh, what a man is. And not only that, there's, there's never been more confusion about uh, manhood than there is today. Dr. Albert Moller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, who's one of the great Christian thinkers of our day, said this, put his quote up here for you. He said, it does not take great intellectual sophistication to see that we are in a period of widespread gender confusion. And I think that on top of everything else, we're just really confused about, about manhood. So that's why it's an important message. It's an important message for everybody. It's an important message for guys, so you would know what it means to be a man. It's an important message for ladies that you would know how to pray for the men in your life. Every lady has, whether she's married or not, she has men in her life. They might be friends. They might be a son. It might be a, a brother. And this helps you to know how to pray for them. And it's also important for single ladies, especially if you're a single lady and one day you hope to be married, that you would know what kind of a man you ought to be looking for, that you don't go out and just marry any guy but you marry a man of God. So that's why we're, uh, it's an important message. Uh, we're not titling the message The Ideal Dude. We th thought that was just a little bit corny, but we, the title we came up with for the message is The Upstanding Man. So we're going to talk about The Upstanding Man today. And so before we get started, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. Okay, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's, it is so good to be here today. And I thank you for church. I thank you for the opportunity to gather to open up your word. And God, this is such an important topic. And it's an important topic because when, a man, because when a man fails to be what you intended for him to be, it just affects everyone. And God, you know that there are men, there are men and women in this room today, there are young people in this room today who, who are really hurting and aching because their dads didn't meet up to those expectations of what a man needs to be, what a father needs to be. And God, especially for them and especially for those who have lost their dads, maybe even recently, I, I pray, God, that you would extend your special touch to them. I pray that you would spend your, you know, extend your special grace to them. In fact, I ask, God, that you would speak to every one of us today. Such an important topic, and I pray that you would use uh, me and Pastor Greg just to speak truth and, and help to unwrap your word, God, that we might know what it means to be a man, not just for, for the guys in this room, but also for the ladies. So speak to us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to kick this off, and there's a few things that we want to share with you that an upstanding man does. Um, if you walked in and you have your Baywatch, there's an outline, or you can go to the SBCC app, and we'd love for you to follow along, but would you write this in? The, the first thing an upstanding man does is the upstanding man lifts up. The upstanding man lifts up. And as you're writing that in, what, what do I mean by that? Well, he lifts up. Jesus. He lifts up his hands and his hearts to Jesus. I, I want to show you this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, um, Paul is actually giving instruction to both females and to males, to, to, to women and to men, different ways they should carry themselves. And to the men, here's what he says in verse 8. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Would you, would you guys underline that in that passage? In every place, they should lift holy hands. Now, 
Something you got to know about worship back in the day is lifting up of hands was that, that was just the way you did it, the way you prayed or the way you worshiped. It was a physical expression. Today, we typically tend to fold our hands or put our hands together. Well, they would hold their hands out as a posture of worship. But, but the love and the, uh, and the power wasn't so much in the physical lifting up of hands, but this was a reflection of the posture of their hearts. It was the lifting up of your hearts before the Lord. And, and that's what an upstanding man does. He lifts his heart high above everything else in life for Jesus. He loves Jesus with, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Above his status and above his salary. Above his possessions and above his passions. Above surfing. Above Star Wars, right? Like he lifts his heart above all else in life. I love this picture. We, we were here at, at the church. There's a Men on the Move uh, event here. And I'm glad this picture was taken. What a powerful moment when, when the men of this church were gathered together and we were just hands lifted to the heavens, singing at the top of our lungs. I mean, there's nothing more attractive than the man who loves Jesus. Amen, ladies? Can I get an amen? Yeah. There's nothing more lovely than a man who loves Jesus. And yet, with that being said, the scripture that we just read says, I desire that in every place, holy hands be lifted up. This was in a context where he says, you got to pray for, for all the different sectors of societies, the kings, the government, the leaders. In every place, holy hands are lifted up. Sometimes the, the easiest place to be seen as a worshiper is in a place of worship. It's not hard for, for us guys here to raise up hands in church where that's expected of us. No one's going to clown you. No one's going to call you out on that. But my question is when our hands come down and we walk out those doors and you go home, do the people in your household say that, yes, this is a man who loves Jesus? Like, I don't want to be nervous if you were to ask Monica, my wife, or my kids, if, if Pastor Greg loves Jesus at home. I don't, I don't want to be nervous about that. What, what if I went to your work and I asked your coworkers and started talking with them, or I called your boss on the phone, hey, is, is John a, a lover of Jesus? Does he love Jesus? Would they say, absolutely. If I were to sit in the backseat of your car as we're driving through the South Bay or we're driving on the 405 freeway, would I say, man, this guy loves Jesus. Everybody else around him doesn't love Jesus, but this guy loves Jesus. In every place are your, are your hands, is, is your heart lifted up because you are devoted to Jesus. And, and, and that's important because, because a man who really loves Jesus and has a sincere love for Jesus in the private sector, you can't help but hide that love when you go out into the public sectors. It can't be hidden. I think about the Bible. In the Bible, there's, you know, we have David, a man after God's own heart. We all, we all know David, right? But what about Daniel? Daniel, another man after God's own heart. And it says that during that time in the kingdom, King Darius, who wasn't even a God follower, saw this man, Daniel, was so impressed. He was so distinguished. And it was a direct result of his relationship with his God, his love for his Lord, that the king wanted to, to raise him up in his ranks. Here's what Daniel chapter 6, verse 3 says, if you have your Bibles. Daniel 6, verse 3, it says that this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. That's the spirit of God. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
King Darius, I love this guy so much. There's something about him that, that just makes him stand out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elevate him. And then all the other high officials in the kingdom start hating on him. Like, wh- wh- who's this kid? Who's this guy, Daniel? Why does the king love him so much? And why should he get the entire kingdom? And so they, they came up with a plan. We, we got to sabotage this guy. We, we got to ruin this guy. How are we going to do it? Well, their plan was to sabotage Daniel's relationship with his Lord. If we can affect that somehow, maybe the king won't see him in such a high light. So they go to the king, King Darius. You know, nobody is worthy of your praise, of, of praise other than you. So why don't you make a law that anybody in the kingdom who worships any other god besides you, King Darius, shall be killed, thrown into the lion's den. King Darius says, I guess, okay, let's write that into, into law. And so here's what happened, verse 10. What did Daniel do in response that maybe his life would be threatened? Verse 10 says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What did Daniel do? Nothing different. Nothing different. In every place, he, he continued to live his life exalting his Lord, lifting up his hands, lifting up his heart to his Lord. To his heart to his Lord. He didn't change his routine. He didn't do it to stick it in their face. He was doing what he couldn't help but do. Love the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, what was the end result? Well, we know what happens next. He gets thrown into the lion's den. God protects him. God lifts him up, brings him out. The end result, the ultimate result, end of Daniel 6. I don't know if you've ever read this, but it says the king's heart, King Darius's heart was won over to the Lord of Israel, to the God of Israel. Why? Well, because he saw him in Daniel's life. He saw Daniel's devotion to the Lord and the Lord's protection over him. He couldn't help but sing praise. Your love for God in the private sectors can't help but be brought to the public sectors. And I want to say that your love for the Lord isn't restricted to your own relationship with the Lord. People see that. And are affected by that. I think about my dad growing up. My, my, my dad is actually here today. And, uh, you know, growing up, I, I would see my dad in, our, in his bedroom. He, he'd be in the upstairs bedroom, and he'd be down by his bed reading his Bible, opened up his Bible, and it's just written up like he's just highlighting and underlining and studying his word. Right? I, I always had that, that, that picture in my mind growing up. And then there'd be times when I'd see him in the morning do his, doing his quiet time, reading his Bible. And then sometimes later at night, the same day, I'd see him in his room on his knees by the bed, reading his Bible, marking it up, saying the Bible. Now, I grew up in youth group learning that you do quiet times. Every day you do quiet times. You pick a time in the day and you do it. If you could even do that every day, it was so hard. Right? If I could just do it once a day, he's doing it twice a day. And I remember I called him out on it one time. Dad, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember I confronted him. I said, Dad, I saw you reading your Bible in the morning. Why are you reading it at night again? Did you forget that you did it in the morning? Why are you reading it twice a day? And I'll never forget what, what he said to me. It was so profound. He, he looked at me. He goes, Greg, who said that you can only read your Bible once a day? And I was like, huh. Huh. you're right. 
The Bible actually says, Psalm chapter 1, blessed is a man who meditates on the law day and night. Blessed is a man who meditates on the law day and night. And, and, and my dad, who, who's here and he's been attending our church, by the way, they started a Chinese uh, Bible study on Sunday night, so if you're Chinese speaking and want to be part of that, please let us know. But his love for the Lord behind closed doors, oh, one more story. Yeah, behind closed doors, he, he would have this, his hymnal, right? He would have his own personal hymnals, and he'd be like singing at the top of his lungs, just worse, personal worship time at home, just singing his hymns, uh, hymns at the top of his lungs behind. I could hear it downstairs in my room. Cats were screeching like in our neighborhood, right? <laughs> But, but, but I saw that, and I want to say his love for the Lord, even behind closed doors, probably had the greatest impact on the love for the Lord I have today, because I saw that. And so as important as your relationship is with God, just because he's worthy of it, just know that it's not limited to your own relationship with God. It affects the way people love God, or it can cause people to hate God how they see you relate with your Lord. This past Tuesday at our Tuesday night prayer meeting, it was requested that we pray for the fatherless, those who have grown up without fathers, who have been abandoned or who have been abused and mistreated by their fathers. And, and one sister raised her hand in the circle and she said, you know, I, I'm one of those people who grew up with, without a father. I was abandoned. And she said, she, she explained how that had such a deep theological impact on her. Because she said, for years, I couldn't even say the word father. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say father, let alone see that a loving God should be called and labeled father. I can't call him Abba like the Bible says he's our Abba, our daddy. I couldn't make that connection until, you know, years later, and God has redeemed her and, and restored her and has given her new perspective. But the way, the way you model that, affects how people see God. You know, our hearts break. Our hearts break as we're hearing more and more stories. For those who have no father, the fatherless, who have no example, no model of what it looks like for a man to truly love Jesus and lift his heart before Jesus. And our hearts also break for those who do have fathers and still do not have a model of what it looks like for a man to love Jesus. And so our encouragement, God, I mean, God forbid that in this church and in our community that there, there are kids growing up without that modeled for them. And in, in this room, I'm sure many of us have failed in that, I'm sure. But this isn't condemnation, this is exhortation. Let, let us men of this church, it's not too late. Let's turn our hearts over to the Lord. Let's surrender ourselves and starting in the private place, let, let's get on our knees, lift our hands and our hearts to, to Jesus. Put them above all else and what's done sincerely in private cannot be hidden when you go out in public. Matthew chapter five, verse 16 says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. An application of that is let your love shine. Let your love shine before others that they may see your love, your life of love, and end up, what, falling in love with your Father in heaven. That gives him glory. Amen. So an upstanding man, start there. He lifts up, lifts up. Amen. Amen. Nearly 40 years ago, Dr. Pierre Mornell wrote this book called Passive Men and Wild Women. 
And Dr. Mornell was a, a psychiatrist in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he would describe, in, in the book, he described some of, the, some of the struggles that some of his patients, some of the female patients that he uh, tended to, uh, had with their, with their husbands. And he would talk about how these, these women were married to very successful men who would drive from Marin County, if you're familiar with the Bay Area at all, they would drive from Marin County where they lived across the Golden Gate Bridge in the financial, financial district of San Francisco where they worked. And they were in every way, he, he would write, he, they, would, they were in every way leaders. They were very effective leaders, very successful leaders, until they arrived home at night. And when they got home back, back home at night, they ceased to be leaders. Except that they would ask, he said, they would ask questions the leader might ask, like, where's dinner? What time is it going to be ready? And where's the remote control? And that was about it. After, you know, when the, all throughout the day, the men, he said, would be active. They were very, very active in their work. And they got home, and they became passive. And they just sat on the couch. And the wives would go wild, wild with frustration, wild with bitterness, wild with anger, because they felt as if they had to carry the whole load of their marriage all, on, all by themselves. They had to carry it all by themselves. They had to take all, make all the decisions concerning family and children and, and, and purchases and all those things all on them. And so that's why they were wild women. Um, you know, when God made man, he didn't intend for him to be a, a couch potato. When God made man, he didn't intend for him just to kick back, lay back. See, manhood by its very definition, manhood by God's design entails activity and hard work and leadership. That's what it requires. I want you to take a look at what God did right after he created Adam. Genesis chapter 2. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 2, the very first book in the Bible. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Right after, right after God created Adam, he put him in the Garden of Eden. Take a look at this. It says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Notice why he did it and what, what he did him for. To work, to work it and to keep it. In other words, as soon as God made Adam and he put him in the garden, he gave him responsibilities. He gave him a job to do. He didn't intend for him to be passive. He didn't intend for him to just lay there and just bask in the garden or bask in the sun. He put him in the garden and he gave him responsibilities and a job to do. You know, but, but what happened? Almost immediately what happened? If you look at the next chapter, chapter 3, take a look at chapter 3, flip to chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we know that the serpent was the devil. And he said to the woman, he comes in the garden, and he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you know, trees in the middle of the garden. God says to Eve, do not eat of the fruit that comes from that tree that's in the middle of the garden. Because I want you to stay away from that. And the devil comes in and says, he didn't say that. Go ahead. And so what happens? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You can stop right there. Let me read that to you one more time. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
Now, you wondering what I'm wondering? Yeah. Where was Adam? Are you wondering that? Where was Adam? Where was the husband? Why didn't he take the fight to the devil? Where was he? What was he doing? Why wasn't he there protecting Eve? Well, the answer, the answer is he was there. He was there. Take a look at the rest of verse 6. And it says, and she, was, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, he was there. The answer is he was there. Underline was with her. Adam was with her. And what was he doing? He just stood there. And then when she offered him the poison fruit, what did he do? He ate it. So guys are good at right? We just stand there and do nothing, and here's some food, and then we just eat. Right? That's, that's what I do. Right? And this account begs the question, where was Adam? Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he do something? Why didn't he take the fight to the devil? Why did he just stand there? You see, what happened was passivity just kicked in. You may not, know to know, you may not have known this. Adam was part Hawaiian. It was like, hang loose, brah. Hang loose, right? Just, just kick it. Just chill. The truth is, ever since Adam, every guy has had a little bit of Hawaiian DNA in them. We all just want to hang loose. I talked to somebody today. I said, what are you going to do? This is Father's Day. What are you going to do when you go home? He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be passive. That's what we do, right? See, but, but God didn't create us to hang loose. He didn't create us to be passive. He didn't, he didn't create us just to stand there and take orders. He created us to take responsibility. He created us to take charge. He created us to work hard, to, to take action, to lead, to step up to the plate, all those things. And we see that throughout the Bible. For example, in Ephesians 5.23, I don't have that listed there for you, but Ephesians 5.23, I'll just, I'll just quote it for you. It says here that Apostle Paul said that God created the husband to be the head of the wife. That's what it says, Ephesians 5.20. God created the husband to be the head of the wife. But what happens? All too, all too often, the husband acts like the tail instead of the head. He acts like the tail instead of the head. A couple years ago, I went to Ecuador with a group of pastors, and the, 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 the trip was hosted by Compassion International. So we went there to check out some of their ministries and uh, I got to know some of the pastors pretty well. We would sit in the bus together on these bus rides for long, long periods of time. One of the pastors I got to know was Matt Brown, who's the pastor of a very large church in, in Riverside County, Sandals. And one day we were on the bus and we were talking. We were talking about our daughters because he's got two daughters and I've got two daughters. And we were talking about what kind of men we hoped that they would marry one day. And we both agreed that we would want, you know, our daughters to marry someone who would be a godly man. And then Matt threw this in. He, he said, he said uh, I'll never forget this. He said, I also want my daughters to marry someone who will work hard and provide for them. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good one. I want my daughters to, to marry someone who will work hard and provide for them. He's right. I thought about my own daughter. I said, I don't want my daughters to, to marry someone who's going to stay home and play video games all day. Right? I don't want my daughters to marry someone who's just going to stand there. I want my daughters to marry someone who will reject passivity, who will take responsibility, who will take action, who will work hard and lead. I want someone, 
I want them to marry someone who will fight for them and nurture them and protect them. That's the responsibility that God has given to the guy, to the man. But so often, the men act like the tail instead of the head. And we see this. There are other examples of this God wanting men to take responsibility and to lead, to step up, step it up. Ezekiel 22, 30, the next passage, put it up here for you. It's on your sheet. Ezekiel 22, 30, God, God said this in regards to Israel. He said, and I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. See, God was looking for a man who would stand in the gap and bring his nation back from the brink. You know what the tragedy was? He found none. Couldn't find, couldn't find that man to lead his nation. I mean, these are tragic words. I found none. Tragic words. And we see this in families as well. And so many families are, are not led by men because the man just fails. If he's not there, he... If he's there, he sometimes fails to lead the family. I mean, Ezekiel 22, 30 could have very well read, God sought for a father among them who would stand in the gap for his family and for his children. But he found none. I mean, did you know that according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 43%, 43% of all children in America today, 43% of all children in America today live in a home without a father? 43%. And not only that, that's, that's over 24 million children. Not only that, millions of, millions of dads are physically present, but they're emotionally absent. So I would imagine that number is way higher. So many children grow up without a father who is physically or emotionally present. You know, recently I, I met Sonny Kang. Uh, Sonny is, uh, and his family are new to our church what a breath of fresh air he is. I found out that he likes to act, and I found this headshot of Sonny on the IMDB page, the uh, Internet Movie Database page. You've probably been there a couple times. Um, I found out that Sonny, after he got married, he wants to be an actor, loves acting. He's got his own IMDB page. Uh, after Sonny got married and had his first child, he realized he couldn't provide for his family just by acting because it's hard to to get to that level where you're constantly working and making millions of dollars. And so, you know, most actors do this, and, and, and Sonny was doing this. He's, he's trying to go to auditions, and he's trying to find places to work as an actor, and then he's waiting tables because that's what actors do. They just wait tables until they can, because it's a more flexible schedule. And after he got married and had his first child, he realized, hey, I can't do this. I, I, can't, I can't provide for my family just waiting on tables and getting tips. And so he decided to put his acting career on hold and he went out and got a job in the banking industry. Purposely put his acting career on hold. Sonny just stepped it up. He just stepped it up and, and that's what it means to be a man. You just step it up. Now that doesn't mean that if you're an actor and you're, you want to be an actor that you shouldn't, you, got, you can't be an actor and that's not what that means, right? If you want to be an actor or for that matter any profession, right? You always, you still have to think about the impacts of your own actions and, and how that will impact your family and, and the responsibility God has given you to provide for them and to take care of them. So write this one down. The second characteristic of an upstanding man, the first one is that he lifts up. The second one is that he steps it up. 
he steps it up. And I love what President Theodore Roosevelt said about this. I'll put his coat up here for you. He said, we need the iron qualities that go with true manhood. Iron qualities that go with true manhood. We need the positive virtues of resolution, of courage, of indomitable will, of power to do without shrinking the rough work that must always be done. What a great quote. In other words, the measure of a man is that he rejects passivity and does the rough, the rough work. He does the rough work of being a man, of being a husband, of being a father, of being a son, of being a brother, of being a servant of Christ. That's what it means. Is that you? Guys, is that you? I want to ask you, if you're a guy, where do you need to step it up? Where do you need to step it up? Where do you need to reject passivity and take responsibility? Could it be in your relationship with God? I mean, do you, just, do you need to take responsibility for your own relationship with God and, and grow in your faith and grow in your relationship with Christ? You know what? Your spiritual growth is not someone else's responsibility. Your spiritual growth is not your wife's responsibility or your mother's responsibility or your pastor's responsibility. Your spiritual growth is your responsibility. Only you can read the Bible for yourself. Only you can pray. Somebody else can't pray for you. Somebody can pray for you, but they can't pray for you. You have to take that responsibility. Do you need to step it up in the area of your marriage? Do you need to step it up in the area of your fatherhood, of being a, of being a dad? Do you need to step it up at church? Do you need to step it up at work? Where do you need to step it up? Think about that. So the upstanding man, he lifts up. The upstanding man steps it up. Let me give you another one. The upstanding man stands up. This one's a little bit different from step it up, but he stands up, if you want to write that in. They, they stand up and fight. They stand up and fight. I want to show you this really uh, interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you would turn there. But 1 Corinthians 13, uh, most of my life, I, I never saw it said in this way because most translations don't give it to you literally like it says in the original Greek language, like the ESV does. But the ESV gives it straight. It says in verse 13, it says this. It says, finally, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Did you guys catch that? Act like men. The Bible's telling you, act like men. And, and when I first read that, I'm like, wow, that's, that's a little strong. It seems like a little, like, chauvinistic, like this instruction that I'm supposed to be macho and man up and scratch and, and burp and, and pass gas. And, and I'm supposed to, like, be a man? Like, what, what does that mean? And yet, I'm, I'm doing some study this week, and I realize, well, that, that's not what it's talking about when it says be a man. Some commentators will actually point us a few chapters back to chapter 13 uh, that might give us some insight. And in chapter 13... He makes this comparison, verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You guys see a little bit of a difference there? Let me try to illustrate it for you. Um, you if you've been here for any period of time, you've heard me talk about my, my princess, my five-year-old princess, Karis. Right, and how I talk, how, how she can never do anything wrong. Well, I call her my number one, my number one princess, because I have two daughters now, and so she's my number one princess, and I remind her of that all the time. And in the past, I've talked about how she could do no wrong, right? But if I'm 
really honest with you guys. I'll be honest with you guys this morning. She, she really is, she's a sinner. That's what she is. I mean, and that's okay. It's expected. So is her mom, right? And so that's where she gets it from. And so, so, she, uh, uh, so I started seeing this, especially as she's growing up and her personality's coming out. And let me give you an example of how uh, not too long ago, I had to discipline her because she did something bad. And so I told her I'm going to take away one of her favorite things for two days. You can't have it for two days. And she was so upset with me. She was really mad. And here's what she said to me. She looked at me. She said, Dad, no one in church likes your preaching. <laughs> oh, oh, what? Oh. She's kidding, right? Yeah. She went below the belt on that one. I'm like, what? And my wife was loving it. She was like, that's awesome. That is so good. But, but that's what's coming out. And in fact, this past week on Thursday night, another episode where where she was upset because little Ernea, her 11-month-old sister, messed up her toys, and she was upset. So she goes up to her, and she pinches Ernea and makes her cry. And I saw this. I said, Karis, you cannot do that. So I, I had to discipline her again. And her reaction, again, she just went hysterical. You don't love me anymore. You're not my BFF. You only love your number two. And, and she, go, she goes on, and, and she's just going hysterical. I would have loved for her to, to actually go, Father, I understand. <laughs> I understand why you're saying, I'm going to go sit myself in the corner, stare at the wall, and I'm just going to think through this. And when I consider my actions, I'll go back to Ernea and, and talk it through with her. Is that okay? I would have loved that. Amen, parents? That would be great, but it ain't happening. It ain't happening. Why? Because she's a kid. She's a five-year-old child. I don't expect that from a five-year-old child. I expect a five-year-old child to act childishly. They react. They don't respond. And so in this context, when, when Paul's saying, act like a man, he's not saying act like a man and not like a woman. He's saying act like a man and not like a child. Right? Because this context is when you face opposition, what do we do? It says we, we stand firm. We, we're watchful. We, we stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. That's how they put it in the Greek. So some translations will try to help us understand it. And one translation can say, have mature courage. Have mature courage and the strength to fight. Here's the idea. Men, men who are upstanding, we're going to fight, but fight like a mature man. Don't react like a little child. Isn't that right, guys? I mean, we're, we're, there's always going to be a fight in front of us. Like, we're, it's wired in us to fight. We like to fight. We fight over everything. We fight over girls. We, we fight over position. We fight over politics. We fight over sports. Who's the better sports? We fight over fights. Who's the better boxer? Who's the better UFC fighter? We fight over what color is the dress? Is it black and gold or is it blue and white? Like, we, we fight over anything there is to fight about. I, I heard about this church in Colorado this week. I read about this where... Um, the church had budgeted money to, to make a big old banner in their worship center, and it was going to read, Hallelujah. But then some people in the church, there's a faction in the group that said, no, it shouldn't be Hallelujah with an H. It should be Alleluia with an A. And apparently this was like a big issue, and some people were saying, no, you have to spell it correctly. And what was correct, correct was what they grew up with. 
And so they went back and forth and they said petitions were drawn up, rallies were held, long drawn out meetings were, were, were uh, put together, threats were made. Somebody from the Alleluia camp said that someone threw a big rock through their window one night that nearly nailed them in the head with a little note and all it said on the little note attached to that rock was Hallelujah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. Well, apparently, the church split. They just couldn't agree, and they split, and they now meet in two separate auditoriums. And in each church, one has a banner that says, Hallelujah, and one has a banner that says, Alleluia. That's crazy. You know how I would have advised in this situation? I would have said to the Hallelujah people, just go with Alleluia and Hallelujah anyway. Amen? <laughs> Amen? That's so simple. But, but this story shows us this truth that we fight over little things, stupid little things that really don't matter. Excuse my language, but sometimes it's so trivial. And guys, we, we're, we're going to fight. There's always going to be a battle before us. But the Bible tells us and exhorts us, fight a good fight. You're going to fight, fight a good fight. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 says this, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the pre uh, presence of many witnesses. Upstanding men, they're, 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 upstanding men, they're going to pick and choose their battles. There's always a battle. But they're going to fight for what truly matters. They're going to fight a good fight. And so my challenge to you today is what is before you? And what, what is God calling you to fight for? Like what will you choose this state to fight for? What really matters? Maybe he's calling you to fight for the poor. Or maybe right now you've you got to fight for your purity. Maybe he's going to call you to fight for those who have no voice. Or he's going to call you to fight for those who have no father. Maybe you're realizing your fight is not against your spouse in this season. My fight is for my spouse in every season. I've been encouraged by this husband and father who recently started attending our church. And uh, he said for like more than 10 years he, had, he hadn't been in church. Um, but he's here now. And uh, he, he said I could share this with you guys if it's going to encourage and build up the church. But, but he came into my office just shattered because his marriage was hanging on by the threads. And in tears, just can't believe that, that his wife wants to walk away from him. If things don't change, she wants to walk away, and, and he's coming, and I love this, this fight in this man, because as, as he's sharing this with me, many men I know would have walked away already. A lot of men would have seen the situation, and they just walk away, but, but he's fighting, and I love that he's coming, not to just see a pastor, but I, 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 I said to him, I suggest that you see a Christian counselor, so He's not just seeing a pastor, but he's also seeing a Christian counselor. But what I love is not only is he seeing a pastor and a Christian counselor, he's going to see God. And he's going to God like, like never before. He's crying out to God desperately. You know, we'll text back and forth throughout, for, throughout the weeks. One day he's saying, oh man, things are going so well. Things are looking really hopeful. And then another day it might be like, man, things just took a turn for the worse. And you see this fight, this up and down, up and down fight. And yet... I love what he said to me recently when I asked him how things were going. He said to me, 
He said, I just got to keep making one good decision after another. Just got to keep fighting and make, making one good deci- decision after another. This past week, he emailed me. Um, he said I could share this, but he was asking for some help to find some scriptures. Here's what the email said. He said, I'm asking for a favor in a task I was given by my therapist today. I've given her a list of characteristic tra- character traits I'd like to improve upon in my life a couple sessions ago. She tasked me with finding a verse or passage relating to each trait and to take the time to drill it into my mind. I figure the, the more arrows I can add to my quiver, the more equipped I'll be when my character is tested. And he goes on in the email and he shows me these uh, traits he wants to work on in himself, and he's asking me, can you help me find scripture so I can start memorizing and filling the, the quiver with God's arrows? And what he's realizing, and I, and I hope he's realizing this, is that his fight is not against his wife to prove he is right. This fight is for his own heart to make himself right. The fight is a good fight. It's a good fight of faith. It's one that truly matters. He's fighting to become a man after God's own heart. He's fighting to, to be a man who, who, who can stand before his wife and be a different man, a changed man. And I have to say, that is one good, dis, good decision that you're making. It is a good fight. Men have many battles every single day. Some are really trivial and really don't matter. And so we can go through life kicking and screaming like little kids over things that don't matter, or we can choose our battles and fight for what truly matters. The upstanding man stands up and he fights good fights. It's mm, good. Right. Once upon a time, there was a Greek hunter named Narcissus, and he was a very handsome man. And his mother was told one day by a seer that her, hus- her son would live a long life as long as he, quote, never knows himself, unquote. He would live a long life as long as he never knows himself. And uh, as a teenager, this good-looking kid, Narcissus, uh, couldn't find a girlfriend. And he left a, wake of, uh, uh, left a trail awake of uh, broken relationships along the way. Well, one day, he was drawn to a pool of water. And he looked in the pool of water and saw his reflection and immediately fell in love with the image. Of course, we know that this went nowhere because Narcissus couldn't, do anything about an image, but he couldn't also draw himself away from the pool of water, and he, he just remained there, and he pined away until finally one day he died of starvation, and you know Narcissus by the more familiar name Narcissus. Today, we're familiar with Narcissus uh, by a host of other names, or by a host of other words, like a very simple three-letter word, ego, E-G-O, ego. According to one definition I read, ego is your conscious mind, the part of your identity that you consider yourself. That's your ego. And everyone has an ego. Everyone has an ego, and I think it's particularly prominent in men. Here's the Urban uh, Dictionary's definition of male ego. It is the belief that you are much better or more important than other people, or it is the behavior that shows that you're much better or more important than other people. That's male ego. I have a confession to make. I've always struggled with ego. I always struggled with it. I didn't realize it until recently. One of the ways it's manifested in my life is through competition. I'm very competitive. And um, I may not appear competitive, but I'm competitive. And my wife has pointed that out to me. You're very competitive. 
And I said, you're right, I am. I hate to lose. And I'm going to tell you a story, and it's a true story. It's the first time I've ever shared this publicly. Uh, but as you know, I'm an angel fan. I love the angels. And our youth pastor, Pastor James, is a Yankee fan. Right? And every time the Yankees and the angels play each other, it always gets a little tense in the office. <laughs> because I'll make these little digs and little remarks to James about how terrible the Yankees are and how we're going to just beat them. We're going to just smash them, right? And of course, he doesn't just sit there and take it. He just comes right back and says, oh, man, the angels, man, they can't pitch. They, don't, can't, they can't hit. They can't. And so we kind of just go at it. And then they have their game. And um, every time, if and when the Yankees ever beat the angels, which hardly ever happens, um, it really upsets me. I mean, it really does. I just recently had a series, and they whooped the angels. I mean, I hope, is James here today? Good. <laughs> I hope he's not here today. They whooped the angels, and I was so upset. It really upset me, and it, make, it had made me, and it makes me dislike, I won't use the H word, it makes me dislike the New York Yankees. It really does. It really makes me dislike, in fact, it makes me dislike anything New York. In fact, I hate pinstripes. I hate the Statue of Liberty. I hate the Brooklyn Bridge. I hate the Empire State Building. I hate New York style pizza. I mean, it's just... <laughs> and I dread going in the office the next day because I know what he's going to say. <laughs> we beat you. We sure got you. And, you know, and I, just, I just dread it. I'm thinking, what am I going to say when he says that? And it's terrible. I confess it. I've confessed it to God. It's terrible. And it's all because of my ego. And you know what ego is? It's just pride. And what's pride? It's sin. That's what it is. It's sin. You know, the greatest man, and I'm going to tell you something, ego, ego pride, whether it's in athletes or celebrities or politicians or pastors or anyone, is not attractive. The greatest man that ever lived was Jesus Christ. I think we all agree with that. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. He said, do nothing. Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or, empty or, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 5, will you underline, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? What mind am I supposed to have among myself? That Jesus, and it's this, that Jesus appeared to us in the form of a man, or in the form of God, rather, because he was God. He, he appeared to us in the form of God because he was God, and he didn't regard equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be seized, something to be flaunted. But instead, what did he do? Verse 7. He emptied himself. And what did he do? Verse 8. He humbled himself. Therefore, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This last part tells us that Jesus achieved, basically, basically achieved what every man, every man wishes and desires to achieve. And that's status, and that's esteem, and that's respect, and that's recognition. All that was given to him. Why? Not because he was narcissistic, not because he flaunted who he was and what he had. I'm God! He didn't act like that. All those things, the name above everything, it was all bestowed on him because he humbled himself. You see, Jesus was the apex of, he was the apex of masculinity. He was the quintessential upstanding man. It reminds me of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 through 4. Take a look at it. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They wanted to know, who's the greatest? That's, that's the thing with, that, that's the mantra among guys. I am the greatest, right? My team, the angels are the greatest. That's our ego. Who is the greatest? Verse 2, and calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, the greatest are not the ones who are millionaires and billionaires and who are seated in powers of places of power and authority. The ones who reach the pinnacle of success are the ones who are like children, who make themselves like children, who have a childlike humility and a childlike faith. They are the ones, they're the ones who stoop low. They're the ones who stoop down. That's your final point. You see, the, the upstanding man stoops down, stoops low, puts the interests of others ahead of his own interests, puts others ahead of himself. They're the ones who are devoid of ego, and they're devoid of pride, and they're devoid of self-promotion. Their lives are not about themselves. They're always thinking of others. They're always thinking of somebody else's interests, not their own interests. Always seeking to put others ahead of themselves. That's the upstanding man. And this final point here just reminds me of, of a video I just saw just this week. I, I think just, this happened just this last week of a high schooler named Ty Kane. I don't know if you saw it. But rather than describe it to you, let me just show you this one-minute video. Take a look at this. It was an extraordinary end to a hard-fought game. Yeah. But it was this extraordinary moment that has people still cheering in St. Paul and beyond. Pitcher Ty Kane had just struck out the final batter, sending his team to the state tournament. But before rushing to join the celebration, he ran to home plate to console his good friend Jack Koken. Being that last out, it was really rough. And uh, to have Ty come up to me after the game, that was huge for me because, you know, I need someone who's there for me, and uh, Ty was the guy. Everyone knows how it feels to be in that situation, so I felt like I, I needed to go up to him and say something, and just was spontaneous and felt like the right thing to do. The two grew up playing ball together. When we were about 13 or 14 years old, we were on a traveling baseball team, and that's where we got pretty close, and we wanted to keep in touch ever since then. They learned how to win and lose, and always put friendship first. 20 years from now, I'll think back to that game. I will not remember the score at all, but I remember what tied it for me, and that's really all that matters. That spontaneous hug was the best play of the game, a home run in sportsmanship. 
Isn't that great? So sweet. You know, after Ty struck out his friend so that his team would go on to the championship, he didn't gloat. He didn't pump his fist. Yeah, he didn't pound his chest. Yeah, we're going to the championship, baby. I just struck him out. Yes. It's male ego, right? What did he do? He stooped down, ran to his friend that he just struck out to hug him, to console him. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to hear what he said to him. The rest of the team just celebrated, but not Ty. Again, that's what it means to be a man. You put others first. You put their interests first. You care about them more than you care about yourself. You stoop down. So to wrap it up, an upstanding man lifts up Jesus. He loves Jesus, loves him more than anything else in the world. He steps it up, becomes a man of action, takes responsibility for his life. He stands up, picks and chooses fights, but he stands for what's right, stands for the truth. And then he stoops down. You know, when a husband or a man or even a high school baseball player fails to do that, the repercussions are staggering. It affects everyone. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been affected by men in your life. If that's you and someone you know, and if that's you, you've heard you're hurting today because of that, then, you know, I just want you to know, man, Pastor Greg and I talked about this a lot because we know that that's very real. And some of you are here today and your fathers are gone. And that's, some of you, this is your first Father Day without, without your father. And it's very, very painful. And we wish that we could just say something to make it better. And we realized we scratched our heads and we searched our hearts and minds and we, we thought there, there isn't anything we can say that's going to make that better. We want so much to make it better for you. All we could think of is that, is that our prayer is that God would touch your heart, that God would wrap his loving arms around you and visit you with his grace and with his love on this day. And, our, and if you're here today and you're a man and you have failed to be the man that God wants you to be because you failed as a father, you failed as a husband, you failed as a son, man, and we can identify with that because we've failed so many times. I just want to let you know that you have a God, you have a Heavenly Father who loves you and you can run to Him and this is your day. Step it up. Run to Him and love Jesus with all your heart because God loved you so much He sent Jesus to, to come to die on a cross for your sins. That you might be forgiven, that you might be given a brand new life, that you can have a brand new start, that you could be born again. And today can be the first day of the rest of your life if you simply surrender your life to Him. And say, God, I failed as a man. Or you, maybe, maybe you have failed as a woman. Maybe you failed as a mother. Maybe you failed as a wife. Maybe you need to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus today and say, God, take me. Forgive me. Receive me. Help me to become the person that you want me to be. I want to challenge you today. Every one of you, step it up. And if you're a young man today and you're hearing this message for the first time, I just want you to know God wants you to be the man that he created you to be. I hope you'll take these truths and apply them. And if you're a lady here today, please pray for the men in your life. Whether that's a friend. We all have got friends, right? Whether that's your, your boyfriend or your fiance or your husband or your father or your son or your grandfather or your, your uncle or your brother. Whoever it is, pray for the men in your life that they would become the men that God wants them to be.
Well, let's close our time in a word of prayer. You bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know how God spoke to you today. I trust that he did. I hope that he did. I don't know what it is that you are going through. Maybe this is the, a really tough day for you. Oh, I just want you to know our hearts just go out to you. And our prayer is this, that God would just touch your life. And if you're here today and you fail as a man, and you failed as a teenager, run to Jesus and he will forgive you. He came to die on a cross to forgive you of your sins. Run to your heavenly father who loves you more than anything in the world. And if there's a man in your life, ladies, pray for him. Pray for them that they would become the man that he wants them to be. Father, thank you so much. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Heavenly Father, you're the only perfect father and your son was the only perfect man. The rest of us, we're so flawed, God. And forgive us of that. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to die on a cross to redeem us from our brokenness and from our sinfulness. And God, I know that there's a bunch of people in this room and they've had, they've had messed up fathers and fathers who weren't there for them. And in some cases, they had good fathers who are gone now. And in many ways, this day can be very, very painful. Oh, Father God, will you touch these hearts? Will you lavish your mercy and grace upon them? And God, I pray that you would wrap your loving arms, your powerful loving arms around them, Heavenly Father. And Father, for all the rest of us, will you help us, God, whether, whether we're men or women, help us to be the men and the women that you want us to be. God, because of the things that we do, the things that we say, the, the way that we live our lives can have such a huge impact on those around us. Help us for the ladies to be the ideal woman. For the guys, help us to be outstanding men. Upstanding men. So that you would be glorified and you would be honored. Father, we love you so much. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for sending him to us. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.